today on Laura Lynn and Friends. They have to keep on going back to the traditions to know how to walk, talk, eat, and sleep. They can't go to the Quran because the Quran doesn't say much about how to walk, talk, eat, and sleep. It spends most of its time attacking us and attacking pagans and attacking any of the idolaters, the Jews and the Christians specifically. It's really a book against us and it's against our Lord Jesus Christ and against everything that we hold to be dear. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the beginning of the last days. My name is Laurel Lynn Tyler Thompson and uh, it is a thrill to be with you today. We see uh, some things that are happening in our world and uh, are we headed basically into end times? It feels like it a little bit. Uh, are we getting closer to um, Ezekiel 38 and 39? I don't know. I don't know. But I love to open my dad's Bible. You know that. I miss him. He passed away two years ago. And um, he has uh, this very, very old Bible, leather covered, and it's lasted the decades uh, of his life and now into my life. And I open it up. I only ever read to you something he's underlined. Okay, so that's the deal we have going here. And he's pretty much underlined every single page. So I opened it up today and it went to Psalms uh, 68, 34 and 35. It says, ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel and his strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. I don't know if someone should have been saying that about God. Uh, I think terrible might have meant like awesome, you know, kind of like how we say sick. You know, we mean it's good. <laughs> oh God, thou art, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. The God of Israel is he that gives strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. Amen. I love it. Uh, my dad loved this word. And I think that uh, if we follow the word of God, we can kind of see what's going on um, in the world. And, and we can have some strength in that. I want to bring on my guest right away. Um, Dr. Jay Smith uh, was born in India to Brethren in Christ missionaries and attended Woodstock School in India. His grandparents were also missionaries, as I have missionary parents, and I was born in Uganda. So we have something in common. He earned a BA from Messiah College and then a Master's of Divinity from Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Apologetics. He has also uh, earned an MA in Islamics from the Fuller Theological Seminary and a PhD in Apologetics and Polemics? Polemics. <laughs> All right, from the Melbourne School of Theology. And so uh, I just found out that uh, polemics is when you're, you know, you're not on the you're not on the defense, but rather on the offense. Is that correct, uh, Dr. Smith? That's correct. It's much like your football team. You have two completely different teams. You have your defense and you have your offense. They're not even on the field at the same time. They have completely different skills. So if you're a, an apologist for Christianity, you better know Jesus Christ pretty well and how to defend him. And you better know the Bible pretty well and know, and know how to do, not only how to read it, but to interpret it. If you're on the off offense, uh, in my case, in Islam, you better know Muhammad pretty well and you better know the Quran pretty well. So my area of expertise is Islam. Uh, I'm a polemicist. Uh, I'm probably the only person in the world that has a PhD in Islamic polemics. Uh, I had to go to Australia to get it because I could not get this done in, in Britain. It is illegal to get uh, a uh, PhD in polemics uh, because they have become so politically correct and 
have bent over backwards to uh, acquiesce to Islam there. So that's why in some ways we are now, we have a whole degree program now here in the United States on apologetics and polemics at a master's degree level. It's the first in the world to do that because we realize that we need to both defend Christianity, but we need to take on Islam head on. And we've got to do that because the battle is being won by Islam in a big way. We've got to stop it and I've got to do it before I die and I've got gray hair. So you can see uh, we don't have that much time to go. Right, right. The time is is short for all of us and it's getting shorter. I really appreciate that. And I just want to say, like, it's so politically incorrect, um, especially in my Canadian culture to, you know, speak against others. Uh, we're always trying to be a nation of peace and diversity and inclusivity, which includes a lot of things that the Islamists, uh, for instance, you know, uh, we've been seeing the queers for Palestine that have been marching with the Islamists. Um, and it's kind of funny, Dr. Smith, because the, the queers and the gays would be, um, you know, thrown off roofs and be murdered by the Islamists, the radicals. So it's a very strange thing. But in Canada, you know, we're supposed to be uh, like, you know, accepting of everybody. But I have run into a real problem, and that's why I want you here today. We've run into a real problem where I've got a very good, um, I, I would say he's a strong acquaintance friend. We're very frank with one another, and he is a Muslim. And he, so he has been trying to explain, uh, you know, how we're all on the same side. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the Messiah. And uh, we're all waiting for Jesus to return, he says. He also says that he loves the Christians and the Jews and that, you know, we should all be on the same side. And uh, basically, you know, we've got to, you know, put our differences aside. And I think that's good. But the one place that has uh, really shown itself that we just can't agree is there's definitely an uh, allegiance that they have with Hamas and Hezbollah. And so that has been a very disturbing trend that I see here in Canada, that as all of these peaceful marchers and not so peaceful, it's becoming a little bit non-peaceful and sometimes violent um, as we're seeing a rise in Islam and a rise in the Palestinian uh, cause that is is um, showing us what's really in the underbelly of North America. And so that has become alarming to me. So I don't want to be alarmed for no reason. So I am very glad that you know a lot about Islam and I'd love to hear your take on this. My friend says he believes Jesus uh, is the Messiah. And um, I said, but you don't believe in the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but you know, we're all on the same page. We're not though. No, we're not. And, and, and in some ways, he is being absolutely dishonest with you. And this is, it's, it's the same way that we would say as Christians, and I hear many Christians say that, that all religions really lead to the same the, the same conclusion. We all believe in the same God. And I hear Christians say this about Islam, I, uh, about Judaism and Christianity. Now, I have no problem believing that we and the Jews have the same God. That I don't doubt. But to say that we and the Muslims have the same God or the same scripture or that we believe the same thing, I would like to ask your Muslim friend, what Quran is he reading? Obviously, he has not so read this book because this is their authority, just as this is our authority. And Laura Lynn, there would, there would be no Christian I know who would dare say something like that if they had looked and compared these two books. He can get away with that in Canada, and he can get away with that in America because the vast majority of Canadians and Americans have not read the Quran. So they have no idea what, what, whether or not what he is saying is true or not. So the next time he makes that claim, 
and he says, we believe in the same Jesus. Say, hold on a minute, which Jesus? You know, I love it when they say we believe in the same God. This is what I do. Whenever they say we believe in the same God, I shake their hands. And I say, God bless you, uh, Abdul, or whatever your name is. You have finally admitted after 1,400 years that your God, Allah, entered time and space and was walking and talking in the cooler day with Adam and Eve. God bless you. Your God, Allah, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And thank you for finally admitting that God came to earth, died on the cross, and rose again, and that he has a son. Now, what have I done? That's taken me 10 seconds to say that. And what I've done is I've shot down four areas where we disagree just on who our God is. Their God, Allah, never enters time and space, is incapable of coming to earth, has never come to earth. Our God can do that. Look who has a bigger God. If our God can do that and their God cannot, then I would suggest they need a bigger God. Our God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No Muslim would accept that right off the bat. And certainly their God, and I mean their person, Issa, never died on the cross. He let another person die in his place. He never died, and he certainly didn't rise from the dead, whereas Jesus did that. So we're not even talking about the same Jesus, and our Jesus is the Son of God, has always been the Son of God, will continue to be the Son of God. So we're not talking about the same Jesus. So how can he say that we agree with your Jesus? He can only say that if he's willing to accept those four things. Now remember, those four things are the four areas, the four cardinal areas where we disagree with Islam. And they are foundational to everything we believe. And in every one of those four areas, you can preach the gospel. That's the beautiful thing about it. So when Muslims come up to me and say what they said to you, I just throw those four things right back at them. It sets my pole, my flag, exactly where I stand. It defines who my God is who my person uh, who the person of Jesus Christ is and what went wrong and what needed to be rectified and the fact that we are going to be walking and talking in the cool of the day just like Adam and Eve were we're going to be doing so with our God again what a God we've got well some of the things I found hard to reconcile is when they say it's a religion of peace and yet Muhammad was not a peaceful guy killed a lot of people uh, he was pretty much a pedophile um, if you think about him marrying, uh, do I have my facts straight? He married a six-year-old. Well, don't had... use that word. That's not the correct word to use. Okay. He, a pedophile is someone who does it, uh, he imposes himself on another uh, girl, a, a man who imposes himself without her permission. In the case of Muhammad, he got the permission from the parents. What he did was perfectly legitimate in the seventh century, according to their traditions. So therefore, he would, he would not, he would not uh, fit Be under in that, that classification. That, that title. So just stay away from that word. But certainly, what I say is, do we allow a 53-year-old man to marry a nine-year-old girl today in Canada? Would you allow that? No 53-year-old man should ever be touching a nine-year-old girl regardless of whether her parents gave it to him or not. And so that's why I would say, is that relevant for today? That's about as much as you need to say. But as far as, you know, as far as violence, goodness, just look at his life. And here again, I would love when Muslims say that he was a man of peace, I say, show me in this book where this man, show me Muhammad where he was a man of peace here. Show me in his biography, the Siratul Rasulullah, which is the, the biography of the Prophet Muhammad. Show me where he was peaceful to the Jews the Banu Kanuka family, or the Malin Nadir family, or the Banu Kuraiza family, the three major Jewish families there in Medina. Show me where he was peaceful to anybody that criticized him, like Asma bin Marwan, who was a poetess, who wrote poetic verse when he moved to Medina. Look what he did to her. He had her stabbed through her chest in the middle of the night while she was suckling her baby. 
And the man who did it came back the next morning and told Muhammad what he had done. And Muhammad went to him and said, Praise be unto you for what you have done for your prophet. This is not a man of peace. And when you look and see what he did to the three Jewish tribes that were in Medina many years, I mean, he never was from Medina. He was from Mecca. He was invited to go to Medina to arbitrate between the Jews and the Ansar. He gets up there in 622. By 627, that's five years, having moved to Medina as a guest in Medina, he had thrown out all the Jews. He had thrown them up to Chaibat in the north. And the last remaining Jewish tribe in 627, the Banu Koraiza family, he took all 800 men and slit their throats in one afternoon, took the women as concubines and the men as, and the children as slaves for his men. Now, I can source three different sources for, for that, that story right there. I can go to Al-Buhari, I can go to Ibn Hisham, and I can go to Al-Tabari. I've given you three sources from three different genres for that very story alone. So when Muslims are going to say he's a man of peace, I'll put them right back to their traditions and say, you cannot say that unless you can support that from your own traditions. Because I'm going to use your traditions against you to prove that your man, your man is not a man of peace. If there were no Jews left by 627, and he has only been there for five years, we have a name for that. We call that genocide. Your prophet was a man who did commit genocide. Are you really going to, going to continue to support him? Now, with that kind of model, then are you not surprised what you've seen what's happened on October the 7th, just last year, there in Israel? They were doing exactly what Muhammad had done. They were doing exactly the same thing. He raped women. He had people, women who were destroyed and killed. He had his men also take any woman. They were up to, they were allowed up to only four wives. But in chapter four, verse thirty-four of first, verse twenty-four of the Quran, they could take as many concubines as they right hand possessed. That means as many slaves of war, women slaves of war, as they wanted to. So it's in the Quran as well. So you can't get away from that. If Muslims are going to claim to be Muslims, they've got to support what they're saying in this book. Thank God this is not my book, and thank God it's not your book, and it better not be anybody's because this book is very violent. It has verse after verse after verse. Slay the unbeliever wherever you find them. Chapter 9, verse 5. It doesn't say what kind of unbeliever. It doesn't even say what they've attacked you for. It says slay the unbeliever, ambush them. Make war upon them in chapter 9, verse 5. As far as we Christians, in chapter 9, verse 29, it says, make war on the Al-Kitab. That's us, the people of the book. In chapter 8, verse 39, it says, slay the unbeliever until there is no more fitna. There is no more unbelief in the land. That means everybody becomes a Muslim. In chapter 47, verse 4, well, actually, verse 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 47 define who a believer is and then who an unbeliever is. Then it comes to verse 4, and it says, cut off the heads of the unbeliever. Ooh, two, 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 two. So you can see, just using scripture, there's 150 of these verses. I've only given you four. And that's why you have to, when Muslims are going to tell me that their man is a man of peace or their book is a book of peace or their religion is a religion of peace, I'm going to say, show me one verse in this book that says you're to have peace with me. Even him, when, when he said to you that I love you as a Christian, I want to be your friend, you need to quote chapter 5, verse 55 to him, 51 to him. Have nothing to do with Jews and Christians, for they are friends of one another, and he who has a friend of them is one of them. So it, we're not there, he's not even to be your friend, according to chapter 5, verse 51 in this book. So you can see wow. there's nothing, there's nothing peaceful about this book. Wow. Um, so other things that... Uh, I've heard is that they are waiting for a Messiah, but that that can't happen until the Jews are slain. Um, any any 
any truth in that that I'm hearing, or is it conflated? Not until the Jews are slain. It, that's not it. They are waiting for the Messiah, the Al-Masihu, to return again the second time. Uh, it doesn't say when it's going to happen, but it well, it, some uh, the Shiites believe it will come when the uh, the 12th Imam, the Imam, finally emerges. He's in incultation right now, according to the Shiites. Now, remember, the Shiites and the Sunnis do have a different theology on this. Uh, they're two different groups. The Shiites only make up about 10% of all Muslims. Uh, the Sunnis make up 90%. So we go with the Sunnis most of the time because they are the majority, by, by far the greatest majority. And that's the only disagreement on that. And what they believe is, both Sunnis and Shiites, that when the Messiah comes a second time, that's, that's going to be Issa. When he returns a second time, he will spend his life to destroy all the crosses, kill all the pigs. He will finally get married. Have five, have seven children. He will then die and then go back up to heaven again. Now, stop and think. What a stupid, idiotic mission for the Messiah. When you look and see what he did the first time. But see, that's what the traditions say. The Quran doesn't say that. And remember, the traditions are written much, much later. They're written two to three hundred years later, and they're written way up north. They're in from the ninth and tenth century, redacted back to the seventh century. So most Muslims don't trust them, anyways. Okay, so Muhammad got this, uh, he got this visitation from, I don't know if they say Gabriel, um, and that was in about 600 uh, AD, right? 610, you're right. Okay. That was Jibril at the, at the Hida cave, according to the traditions. Now remember, I'm going to keep repeating, you'll hear yeah. me a broken record, according to the traditions. The traditions okay. are not the Quran. There's two different genres here. Okay. The Quran is what you have to stick to if you're going to be discussing with Muslims because most all the stories surrounding Muhammad are not in the Quran. Muhammad's only referred to four times in the Quran. That's it. And three of those times are not referring to him. They're referring to Jesus Christ. Now, remember, Jesus is referred to 93 times, Abraham to even more, Moses even more. Almost every one of the prophets is referred to many more than Muhammad, only four times in the Quran. So there's very little about Muhammad in the Quran. Oh, there's all kinds of references to a prophet, a Nabi, or a Rasul. But which Nabi and which Rasul? Look and see what he does. Look and see what he says. And everything he does and says do not take place in a place called Mecca. There is no Mecca. We don't have any reference to any place called Mecca until the 8th century. That city didn't even exist at the time Muhammad was supposedly living. And so it takes him 100 years before you get any reference to this city. So you got all this stuff you can just throw away, and that's why it's so easy to argue with Muslims on this material. They cannot come or go on it because they, they have to keep on going back to the traditions to know how to walk, talk, eat, and sleep. They can't go to the Quran because the Quran doesn't say much about how to walk, talk, eat, and sleep. It spends most of its time attacking us. And attacking pagans and attacking any of the idolaters, the Jews and the Christians specifically. It's really a book against us and it's against our Lord Jesus Christ and against everything that we hold to be dear. Who who wrote the Quran? Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Um, Muslims will tell you it is unwritten. It is eternal. It has always existed. In chapter 85, verse 21 and 22 of the Quran, it says that these preserved tablets. That means they have always existed. Every exegete, Ibn Kathir, Zaymak Shari, Suyuti, Baidawi, they all, when you read what they, how they exegete that, those two verses, these are the eternal tablets that have never been created. So this book is the uncreated Quran. It exists on those tablets that are co-eternal with Allah himself. It, all right, already, you see that there, there is a theological problem here because now you have a duality in heaven. How can there be two eternals? I thought Allah was one. 
How can they have a, a tablet that's co-eternal with him? That's not for us to talk about today. But so the Quran was then sent down piecemeal over a 22-year period between 610 and 632 by Jibril to a man named Muhammad in a place called Mecca that didn't even exist. So who wrote the Quran? No one wrote the Quran. Who actually received it? According to Islamic tradition, which is two to three hundred years later, I'll keep reminding you that, it was then written down by his secretary after he died. It was not written down while he was living. He died in 632. There was a battle happened in Yamama in 632, and 70 of those who had memorized the Quran from what Muhammad had said to them died in that battle. And Abu Bakr realized, we've got to do something. We've got to write it down before all the memory, all the Quran goes to the memory of those who memorized it. And so he had the secretary of Muhammad, Zaidi bin Tabit, write it down. So that's the first recension. So if you want to say who wrote it down, according to the Islamic tradition, he wrote it down in 632. And what did he do with that copy? He gave it to Umar, who gave it to his daughter named Hafsa, who had been a wife of Muhammad, and she stuck it on her bed. What an idiotic thing to do. Why would you stick the only Quran, the only example of a Quran in existence, why would you stick it under a bed and leave it there for 20 years? Well, you can imagine what happened after 20 years. There were many different Qurans that started popping up all over the place as people's memories change. And as you know, your memory changes, and the things you say change as you go along in the order you get. And so in 652, so that's 20 years later, Uthman was in power, according to the traditions, and they went up to, to do a battle in Azerbaijan. And while they're up there, uh, Udaifa, who is the man that was sent up there to do the battling, he went to a mosque after the battle had been won, and he went to pray with some Muslims from uh, Syria and some Muslims from Iraq. And they were praying, reciting the Quran. But it was not the same Quran that he remembered. And so he started fighting them and beating them up. They went to blows with each other, and he went back down to Medina, went to Uthman and says, we've got to do something here. We cannot have many different Qurans. Therefore, we need to rewrite the Quran in the Qureshi dialect. So they wake up Zaidi bin Thabit. He'd been asleep for 20 years. I'm being facetious there. He goes and gets that copy that was under the bed of Hafsa. He retrieves it back again and he rewrites the Quran. Again, why do you have to rewrite him? It's already there. Do you see the problem there already? And then Uthman, it says there in Al-Buhari, volume 6, hadith number 510, he took all the other Qurans which disagree and burned them. Why do you burn something unless, of course, it disagrees? So it looks like there were many Qurans at the time of Uthman in 652. Nonetheless, after he burned all those that disagreed, he took this, la this final one that was put together by Zaidim Tabit, and he sent it to five cities, Basra, Baghdad, Damascus, you have, and Mecca and Medina. So two of them in, are in Iraq, one's up in Syria, and two are down in Arabia. Now we have five Qurans. So here's the question I ask you. You're going to say, who wrote those Qurans? I'd like to know where one of those Qurans is, because we don't have one of those Qurans in existence today. Not one of the Qurans from Uthman is in existence today. And yet those five cities, Mecca, Medina, Basra, Baghdad, and Damascus have been under Islamic control for 1,400 years. How could they lose all five of them? Why is it not one of them is in existence today? There's the million dollar question. So hold on a minute. So where did we get this Quran from? Who wrote this Quran then? Where does it come from? You ready for this, Laura Lynn? Yep. This Quran that I have in my hand today was chosen in 1924, a hundred years ago. Mm. Have you heard this before? No. Nope. So if this is chosen, that means there must be others, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, there are. There are 29 other Qurans. There are 30 Arabic Qurans, no two are alike. I've got right there, if you look up at the very top of my shelf, 
There are nine of them right there. See those? Can you see up on my tongue yep. that I'm pointing to? Yeah. Those are nine completely different Qurans. Let me just show you two of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. These two right here are the two most important. I'm now showing you two completely different Qurans. These are not the same. They're both Arabic and they're over a thousand years old. This one here is the, I'm sorry, this one here, the green one is the Hafs Quran written in 796 by a man named Hafs from Kufa. This one here is a Warsh Quran and he died in 812. Muhammad died in 632. Do you see a problem here? Yes. <laughs> this is the Quran that was chosen in 1924 to be the official Quran for the whole world. All right. That was only in Cairo, in Egypt. It was finally chosen by the Saudi Arabian government in 1985. Were you alive alive in 1985? I was. <laughs> so was I. Yeah. That makes us older than the canonical Quran. We are older than the canonical Quran. This one here, because this one still exists, and so do the other 29. They all exist. Now, if you look at these two Qurans, how many differences would you guess between these two Qurans? Remember, the Quran is the same everywhere in the world. Not one letter, not one word, not one dot is changed, right? Yet when I'm, you're looking at just these two, there are 5,000 different words between these two books I'm showing you. 5,000 mm. different meanings, 5,000 different theologies, different doctrines, and yes, even different practices. Now, is this the first you've heard this? Yes. Yes, it is. That's just those two. If you compare this one with the other 29, this one with the other 29, there are 93,000 differences. Ooh, two, 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 two. So when you ask me who wrote the Quran, I'm going to ask you, which Quran are you talking about? Are you talking about this one or that one? Are you talking about the Hafs or the Warsh or the Kalun or the Kisai or the Ibn Kathir? See, I've got nine of them. My colleague, Hatun Tosh, has all 30 of them. You can buy them today. They're still in existence. Why are they still in existence? Because everybody around the world, Muslims all around the world, have to memorize the Quran. And they have to memorize it in the Arabic that their fathers and grandfathers and their lineage did it. So you cannot have different Qurans because you have to re-memorize it all over again. So they just keep sending it down generation to generation. And this has been going on since the 10th century. We're now in the 21st century. This has been going on for 1,100 years. That's why they have to keep printing them. God bless them because that makes my job so easy. So would they have like the basic uh, things the same like uh, Muhammad, the great uh, prophet or whatever? He, he, is he deemed to be a son of God or what would they call Muhammad? The prophet? Muhammad is nothing more than a messenger. Nothing more a than a messenger. That's in this that's in the Shahada. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Mm. There's only one God but God. And Muhammad is the messenger of God. Now hold on a minute. Muhammad is a name to you today, right? Yes. But that wasn't a name in the seventh century. It was a title. Mm. The word Muhammad was a title means the praised one. That's what it means in Arabic. Ask any Arabic Muslim, what does the word Muhammad mean? They'll say it means the praised one or the anointed one or the lovely one. Ooh, two, 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 two. It's the same word we have in Song of Solomon 516 about Solomon, hmm. the BC, lovely one. 516 BC, yeah. No, Song of Solomon, the book Solomon, Solomon, yes. chapter 5, verse 16. Oh, 516, the chapter. Okay, got it. Yeah. Altogether lovely. Mm -hmm. He's talking about Solomon, and he's talking about those that are altogether lovely. Mahmud, 
M-H-M-D. It's the same word in Hebrew that it is in Arabic. It's the same word that has been around for since 1400 BC. Mm. It's a word that's been around for 3400 years, but in the seventh century, here's now here's gonna blow your mind. In the seventh century, this word Muhammad or Muhammad, because it depends on where you put the vowels, there were no vowels. Remember, Arabic doesn't have vowels, just has consonantal texts. The vowels had not yet been invented in the seventh century. That was in the eighth and ninth century. In the seventh century, it was just Muhammad. Today, we know it is Muhammad. But who was the Muhammad in the seventh century? To understand that, you need to look at the coins. And see, the coins don't lie. That's what's beautiful about the coins. They also don't disintegrate or deteriorate. And just look at Mu'awiyah's coin that he mints in 661. He is the caliph there in Damascus. He puts his face on the image of the coin, and he has a cross above his head, and he's holding a cross. Hold on a minute. If he's a Muslim, as every Muslim tells me, he is the first of the Umayyad caliphate. He is the first caliph of the caliphate. What's he doing with a cross on his crown and holding a cross in his hand if he's a Muslim? Right. You see a problem here? Yeah. On the back side of the coin is the letter M, which means 40. Above the M is another cross, proving it's a Christian. What's written underneath? Muhammad, M-H-M-D, the praised one. So who is the praised one? Jesus is the praised one. He, was, he has been the praised one since the 4th century and the 5th century and the 6th century in Arabic. In Arabic, he was seen as the praised one. No wonder Mu'awiyah is talking about Jesus. So this is the title in the 7th century. That's why there's so many references to him. But look at all the references to Muhammad in the 7th century. Uh, Thomas the Presbyter refers to him in 634, but he's way up in Gaza. I'm sorry, he's way up in Hira. He is in what is today northern Iraq. The, he's a Lachmid. And there he, they're using the, 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 uh, the Persian way of spelling it, M-H-M-T, not D. And that's why he is a Lachmid king. That's another praised one. Look at the, uh, this Muhammad who's referred to by the uh, doctrine of Iacobi. It's referred to by the, the um, uh, Sabaeus, who is a Christian uh, a monk who's referring to him as Muhammad in 660s. Every one of these references to Muhammad has him in Damascus or in Gaza or in Jerusalem or way over in what is today Baghdad. This is not the Muhammad from Arabia. This is many times it is Jesus. And that's why when Muslims are looking for their prophet, they can't find him anywhere. We can't find him anywhere. That prophet Muhammad is nowhere to be found on any coins or on any inscription. And the time you do find him, he's a Christian king or he's a Christian Jesus. He is the person Jesus himself. Ooh, it just makes my job so easy. Wow. Wow. So so basically, it's fair to say that the religion of Islam, they like to point it back to, to Muhammad, uh, but they also kind of like to infer that it's always been there. Um, what do we do about Abraham had Isaac and then Ishmael? Do you think that that was a, a dividing line that that Ishmael made the Islamic. So they'll kind of take it back to believing in, in Abraham, Abraham. Now let's talk about Abraham. Where do you think Abraham lived? Laurelyn, where did he Ur, live? Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldees, which is in Iraq. Then where did he go? Um, he went up to Turkey, right? Maybe. And then yeah. he, finally landed, he finally landed in Israel today, right? So yes. he went up along the north. Why did he go from Turkey up, sorry, from from Iraq, Iraq. up to Turkey and then over to Israel? I don't know. Because him there. there's water there. There's water there. Where there's water, there's food. Where there's food, there are people. Where there are people, there are towns, towns, there are cities, cities, there are civilization. Where there is civilization, there is history. He would go where he could survive. 
So he went to Hadran, Had uh, which is up in the north, and then he went down and he settled in what is today Israel. And there's water in all those places. But look at the Quran in chapter 21 of the Quran and see where Abraham is in the Quran. He's way down in Mecca. That's a thousand miles further north. Take a look at any map of Mecca. It's a desert. There's no water there. Where there's no water, there's no food, no food, no people, no people, no towns, no towns, no cities, no cities, no civilization, no civilization, no history. How could Abraham be living way down in Mecca, a thousand miles further south, when there was no Mecca? There is no reference to Mecca at all. We don't have any place called Mecca because it's in a desert. <laughs> and Muslims are not, have no idea how to respond to this. That's why in some ways, when you're asking about Ishmael and Isaac, you're going to have to go to the biblical Ishmael and Isaac. Don't go to the Islamic Ishmael and Isaac. Because Ishmael and Isaac, listen, even when Abraham was sacrificing his son, it doesn't even mention which son it is in the, in, in the Quran. Something as important as that. So what has happened is that those who are Arabs who are in the line of Ishmael, these are the Nabataeans, they are the ones in the 7th century who saw their lineage from Ishmael, but they didn't have any prophetic line. They didn't also have a scripture. The Ishmaelites don't have a scripture. Whereas their cousins, the Jews and the Christians, they had a prophetic line through Isaac, and each of them had their own scripture, the Old and the New Testament. Now, here's the problem. The two great powers of that time in the 7th century, um, once Heraclius destroyed the Persians and made, created a vacuum there, the Arabs were suddenly free. The Arabs of the 7th century, they were living in what is today Syria and what is today Jordan and what is today uh, Lebanon and Israel. Those, city, those countries were under their under their control now, but there were there was nobody to control them. There were many different city-states, but they were all Ishmaelites, and they were speaking Arabic. Until Mu'awiyah comes and brings them all together and creates the first, the first caliphate, and he does that in Damascus. See, if he is a caliph and he is a Muslim, what is he doing way up in Damascus? Why isn't he down in Medina? Because that's where all the traditions say all the caliphs were. That's where Muhammad was, that was where Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, the first five caliphs, were all living in Medina. Why isn't he down in Medina? See, no one's asked these questions. We're asking these questions. The reason he's not in Medina is Medina had no water. The same problem. It was a hamlet. There were not more than 200 people at any time there in Medina. And there were no Jews and no Christians that far south. But take a look at this book. If this book comes from that area, why is it so full of discussion and debate against the Jews and the Christians? Look at all the theology. It's all against Christianity and Islam. How can you have debates and theology against Christianity and Islam if there are no Jews or Christians that far south? Do you see a problem here? Mm. Wow. So it's obviously this book was not written in Medina or Mecca. It must have been written much further north. And you know that just by reading the Arabic. Read the Arabic. The Arabic, Arabic in here, it, what you see here, and you can still see it today, is Nabataean Aramaic. It is not Sabaic Arabic. Sabaic Arabic is what they would have spoken in Mecca and Medina, the Hijaz, the central part of Arabia. That is not the Arabic that you see in the Quran. This is from much further north. It's about a thousand miles further north, and it just makes my job so easy. Because coming and going, we can shut this down. Notice everything I'm telling you today is historical criticism, isn't it right? Mm-hmm. I'm using redacted criticism, I'm using source criticism, I'm using textual criticism. You don't have to know a word of Arabic to know what I've just told you. Right. Can you see how easy this is? 
And that's why when your friend comes to you and starts to ask you questions, say, we share the same God, we share the same Jesus, say, first of all, show me that in the Quran. You can't support that in the Quran. You know we don't share the same God. I want nothing to do with this God. This God does not, cannot enter time and space. Mine can't. This God never died on the cross and rose again. Mine did. This God is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Mine is. And this God has no son. My God has always had a son and always will have a son. Therefore, we do not share the same God. And this Jesus, look and see what he does. He has a little baby. He creates mud uh, birds out of mud, blows them and flies up in the air. Why does he do that? And where is that in the Bible? That's a fictitious story that comes, and we know exactly where that story comes from. It comes from the Gnostic writings. It's a Gnostic writing that was written in the second century and was borrowed and put into the Quran in chapter chapter three, verse forty nine. And then the the whole thing, the whole thing about him, he and this Jesus and his mother, they run out of food. They're both hungry, so he gets a palm tree to bend down and to feed his mother. That's not in the Bible. But where does that come from? It comes from the lost Arabic books of the Bible. Again, another Gnostic sectarian account. Everything that's in the Quran is borrowed from other sources, but it's the wrong sources. It's the wrong material. And the reason why is because that's all they had. The Ishmaelites, they only had Arabic. They didn't have the, this book here. And why? Because this book had not yet been translated into Arabic. It was still in Syro-Aramaic. It was still in Hebrew. And the Arabs did not know Hebrew, and they did not know Syro-Aramaic. Therefore, they had to borrow what they could. And so they borrowed all these sectarian writings and all these stories. These are folk tales, Laurelin. These are folk tales that were told to Jewish children, and they just put different names to it. So you have the story of Abraham in chapter 21. That's right from the Talmud of Mishnah. You have the story of Cain and Abel in chapter 5, verse 32, uh, where he Cain kills his brother. Abel doesn't know what to do with the body, and so he follows a raven that scratches in the ground and follows that example. That's not in your Bible. That, that comes from the Targum of Jonathan ben Uzziah, written in the second century AD. And then they have the story. Oh, there goes my bubbles again. I'm sorry about that. My bubbles do that whenever they like. When they like <laughs> That's okay. It was fun. <laughs> That's all right. It's my, it's my computer doing that. So you can see all of this is just borrowed material, and they borrowed the wrong material because they did not have the Bible. This was not translated into Arabic until the late ninth century. Six, uh, uh, I want to say, eight sixty-eight was the date it was translated. It's in the it's in the Codex Sinaiticus one five one, which is in the St. Catherine's Monastery there. It's still there. You can go look at it today. That's the first New Testament written in Arabic. And take a look at who is the name for Jesus in the earliest Arabic New Testament. Guess what his name is? It's not Issa. Issa is not Jesus' name. What would you guess would be his name in Arabic? Uh, Yesu? You got it. Yeshua. Yes. Just like the Hebrew. Surprise, mm, surprise. Why are we surprised? Of course it's the same word because it's the same root. And there it is written in the ninth century that Jesus we find in the New Testament in the Arabic, the Christian Arabic Jesus is Yeshua. And those story, that story does not have him bending down a palm tree to feed his mother, does not have him creating birds out of clay and blowing on them. That is the authentic story. But when the Quran was being put together, that yet had to be translated. That's why these stories are not in the Quran. That's why the Quran is as fraudulent as you can get. And it makes my job so easy. Wow. So what about um, what about heaven? Like, how does uh, how does the Muslim religion describe how you get to heaven? I'll tell you why I'm asking, because I couldn't get any of my taxi drivers in Ontario. I would go there once a month for eight years 
and I'd always have two, maybe three taxi cab rides during that time. Usually they're Muslim guys. So I would ask all of them, so how do you get to heaven? Because then I want to tell them how I'm getting to heaven and maybe they could too. And uh, they didn't seem to know, like they said, well, you'd be a good person and all of that. And I said, I, I would ask them if I would get into their heaven. And I said, I think I've been a good person. Will I get into your heaven? And they said, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, we respect Jesus. Uh, he's a great prophet. And I said, yeah, but you don't think he's the son of God then. And, uh, you know, so we'd have this discussion, but they never seemed to really know what would actually secure their, their spot in eternity. Okay, here it is. You ready? The reason they could answer is because you were a woman. Oh. They were too embarrassed to tell you what's in heaven waiting for you. Oh, okay. You can see why. You got them, you got them in a fix there, and they were too embarrassed. They wanted to get a good tip from you for your taxes. They're not going to spoil your day. Because it's very clear to any Muslim who knows their theology that you, once you get to heaven, the heaven is only for men. It's not for women. It is a heaven of hoodies. Hoodies are these perpetual virgins. Now, interestingly, that a word comes from Zoroastrian. This is straight out of Zoroastrianism. It is borrowed again. Chapter 55, chapter 56 of the Quran tells you about these hoodies. But here's what's interesting. <laughs> I'm going to really blow your mind on this one. You know, um, according to the Muslims, when they blow themselves up and become a shahid, right? If they, it says uh, in chapter 47, verse 6, he who participates in jihad, if he should die, great shall be his reward in heaven. So what is his reward in heaven? Well, first of all, it's heaven. But what's waiting for him? The Quran doesn't say, except chapter 55 and chapter 56. You have to go to the traditions to tell you what's waiting for them. 72 virgins, right? These 72 women who are waiting for them. You've heard this before, right? Here's the I problem. Have. How do they know that? Because of the word hoodie. The word hoodie actually is a Syro-Aramaic word that goes back to St. Ephraim in the 4th century. And the word hoodie in Syro-Aramaic is grapes. Grapes. It's the nectar of heaven. So in the prayers of St. Ephraim in the 4th century, when people come to heaven and they're there and they enter heaven, who is waiting for them? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there waiting for them, and they're giving them 72 grapes with firm with firm, with firm um, uh, light-colored grapes. So now you have light-colored skin women with firm breasts. No, it's not firm breasts. It's actually firm skin of the grapes. So they're ripe uh, skins. And that's why they are sweetness. This has, it's describing actually these grapes in heaven. So all these shahids who are blowing themselves up, trying to get to heaven because of chapter 47, verse 6, because that's the only way you have an assurance of salvation. There is no assurance of salvation. You have to do it by killing or dying in the cause of jihad. You're going to get 72 grapes. They think it's 72 women. Now here, here it is. So how do they do that? Unless you blow yourself up, that's the only way that there's assurance of salvation. No one has an assurance of salvation in Islam at all. Not even Muhammad. Why? Because when you die, according to traditions, not according to the Quran, according to traditions, when you die, you are then, uh, the records of everything you are done have been taken by the two recording angels. There are two recording malakas who are on every, either one of your shoulders. When you were born, you're given a recording angel that records your good deeds. That's called baraka, 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 baraka. Another angel is put on your left shoulder to record your bad deeds. That's kaharam, haram, haram, haram. So baraka haram, baraka haram. It's basically credit and debit, credit and debit. Your good deeds on this side, your bad deeds. They're invisible. That's why you can't see them, Laurel. They're both there, according to Islam. And they're recording all your good deeds and all your bad deeds. Now, what 
uh, when you do a bad deed, when you lie or you do something or you do deceptive or you do something in business, you then have to do so many of your baraka, 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 barakas to do that. Now, what constitutes a baraka? The five pillars. So if your taxi driver should have told you that. The five pillars are what's required. You have to do the shahada. There's only one God but God, and Muhammad is, is his prophet, is his messenger. You have to do the five prayers a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and three at night. You then have to do the you have to do the Hajj. I'm sorry, the, the Ramadan fast, which is for one month every year. And then you have to do the Hajj once in your lifetime. And then you have to pay the Zakat, which is 2.5% of everything you own. So those are the five things that get you baraka, 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 baraka. So those are the five things that you don't do that they all do. That's not why they didn't want to tell you that. Because they, if they were a good Muslim, they would have known that to say, you're not doing any of those five things. Because you may be a good person. But see, they want to get good tips from you. That's why they want, didn't want to slap you in the face. Right. And <laughs> I was never going to get the truth that, that way. Why yeah. is your head uncovered? Why don't you have the hijab on? Because in chapter 33, verse 49 of the Quran, it says very clearly that every believing woman who wants to get to heaven must be completely covered except for her eyes. Everything must be covered except for your eyes. That's the burqa. That's the purda. That's not the hijab even. So you can see you Muslims don't want to talk about this. It's not only embarrassing, ah, but they're not going to get very good tips from you if you're driving in their cab. Right. Okay. So it. So you were saying that men get to heaven, but these women want to get to heaven with the hijab. So, so do they have some place they get to go? <laughs> Here's what's funny. According to one of the great traditions of al-Buhari, it says very clearly that Muhammad was given a vision of hell. And when he was given a vision of hell, the majority of those in hell were women. And then he was given a vision of heaven. And when he looked into heaven, he saw the majority of those in heaven were men. And when he asked, why is it that most of heaven is made up of men and most of hell is made up of women? His re the response from Jibril was because women are more disobedient and less intelligent. Now stop and ask yourself, are you more disobedient? Are you less intelligent? Absolutely not. Not in the 21st century. You can't get away with that. Now you can see why Muslims, whoa, there go my balloons again. <laughs> They're just agreeing with me. They agree with you as well. Women, I know, outperform guys in almost every category in school today, in every area, up until I think 1973. I think boys in standardized tests here in the United States were, uh, were, got, were head of girls in standardized tests. Since 1973, they have surpassed us. Uh, and that's why you cannot say they're less intelligent. Not at all. Not today. More disobedient? That all depends on what you mean by disobedience. We're more disobedient to them as well, especially the number of us who go off and do whatever we want. So you can see this is a real problem for Islam. It's not relevant for today, and it also shows that everything they do is working off their salvation when we know there's not a thing you can do to work off your salvation, because it only took one sin to get us thrown us out of, out of the Garden of Eden. That's how holy God is. He is so holy that he cannot even allow one sin in his presence. We see that in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. We have done whole slews of sin. There's not a thing we can do. That has to be done for us. Wow. So um, regarding uh, their position on, um, I had another question while you were talking. Sorry. Um, so many questions. Uh, you've, you've been mentioning that their, their Allah cannot be on earth. Uh, I didn't know that. Like, what do you mean about that? That he, he doesn't uh, come into our time and space or something? Absolutely. And the Muslims will say it very clearly. There was a very famous debate where um, Ahmad Didat was debating a Christian 
And when they suggested about how is it that God can enter time and space, Ahmadita said, how dare you say that God can enter time and space? How dare you say that he became a worm like us? A worm, a worm, and he yelled it out, a worm. We're just worms. I had the same thing happen to me when I was in Russia. I was doing a debate there uh, with uh, two Muslim clerics. And of course, I don't know a word of Russian, so I had to use, I went through three translators. They say, because I speak so fast. I don't think I do. And the first question was this very question. They said, how can you say God can come to earth? Allahu Akbar, God is the greater. Please, Mr. Smith, if God is the greater, how dare you say that he took on human form? Because he is eternal. We are infinite. We are finite. How could the infinite become finite? Please don't say that God came to earth because he is omnipotent. How can the omnipotent take on a human form? And so I turned to my translator and I said to him, I want you to say to him, how dare you? Shame on you for saying what you just said. And the translator did not want to say that. I said, no, just say exactly what I'm saying. Shame on you. How dare you say, Allahu Akbar, God is the greater, yet he cannot come to earth. You've just taken away his Akbar. You've just taken away his greatness. How dare you say God is omnipotent, but he cannot enter time and space. You've just taken away his omnipotent. Of course, God can enter time and space. He can do anything he wants. Maybe your God, maybe your God is incapable of entering time and space. Ah, well, then you need a bigger God. Come on home. We've got him. So then he, they came back to me and they said, okay, are you saying therefore that, that God can eat? I said, yeah, my God can eat. Who do you think was eating there in the tent of Mamre with Abraham? That was God eating in the tent of Mamre. And if you follow Abraham, why don't you ask Abraham if God can eat? The God of Abraham can certainly eat. Ah, Mr. Smith, so God could go to the toilet? And they thought that they'd had me on that. And I said, no, hold on a minute. Stop a minute. I can go to the toilet. You can go to the toilet. Are you saying that we can do something that your God can't do? That makes us superior to your God. So your God can't do something that I can do. <laughs> and finally they said, okay, are you saying that God can die? So I said to my translator, say this. Here you have been spending the last 10 minutes telling me that God cannot come to, to earth, that God cannot enter time and space, that God cannot eat, that God cannot go to the toilet, that God cannot die. Who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? Would you stop telling God and stop limiting God? Why don't you ask God if he can die again? Why don't you come right back to John chapter 10 and just read? Because Jesus says that exactly in John chapter 10. For the Son of Man can lay down his life and take it up again. My God can die at any time. But don't leave him dead for heaven's sakes. See, that's the day you celebrate Friday. That's the day he died. Friday's here, but Sunday's a come. Get him to Sunday. Because in Sunday, he then rose from the dead. Yes, my God can die and rise again. Proving that only God can die and rise again. That's another way of saying, I am God. What a great question. You can just preach the gospel from there. And that's why the questions they throw at you, use it to preach the gospel. Yes, we have a God that can do so much more than their God. If their God is incapable of coming to space, here's another way you can approach it. What I do is I take the Quran and say, okay, hold on a minute. Look at chapter 20 of the Quran. In chapter 20, in verse 10, Moses sees a fire in the distance. So he wants to approach the fire to see if he can get some fire for his own fire. As he approaches the fire there in chapter 20, verse 10, the voice from within the bush, it's the burning bush, and it's burning, continually burning without being consumed. And the voice in that bush says to Moses, Moses, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. So I asked my Muslim friend, okay, holy ground. If it's holy, does that mean God's there or is it God not there? Can there be holy ground without God? And you can mm. see the gears start to turn. <laughs> they, <Right. laughs> they have to say yes. 
And if they start to stumble, say, go to verse 14, because verse 14 then says that the voice within the bush says, truly, this is Allah who is speaking to you. Now, is Allah in that bush? Can anybody take on the name of Allah except God himself? Bingo, you've got them. And you can see they don't want to answer the question, because if they say that is God in that bush, they're going to have to tear that, that story out and throw it away. And you don't do that to the Quran. But if they admit that that is God in that bush, and it's right there in their Quran, then if God could enter time and space, because that bush is on earth, is it not? Moses is on earth, is he not? And if that bush is there in 1900 BC, then if God can do it in 19, I'm sorry, this is with uh, Moses, so that's 1700 BC. If God could do that with Moses in 1400 BC, then he could certainly do it 2000 years ago and live 30 years on 33 years on earth. That's so you can use the Quran against them just by sh pointing up that story. And that's another example, Laura Lynn, of them borrowing a story from the Bible in this case, uh, from the, the book of the book of Exodus, chapter three. They borrow the story and they put it into the Quran without understanding the meaning. Don't do that to our Bible, because if you're going to take that story, you're going to have to take the meaning with it. And God was in that bush. That's why we have no problem with God coming to earth 2000 years ago, because he's come to earth all the, from all through history. And he certainly was there with Adam and Eve walking and talking in the cool of the day. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, the apostate prophet, but he basically left the Muslim religion. He's become an atheist and, and all of that. So I had him on, you know, to discuss like why he, why he left uh, Islam. And he talks about, you know, the, in, the um, inconsistencies with the way they refer to Mary or Miriam and they get the two yep. Marys mixed up. Have you heard of that? Yeah, that's in chapter 19 and chapter 66 of the Quran. You have Miriam who is the mother of Jesus, who yeah. is the, who has a brother named Aaron, uh, who is the brother of Moses, and both Aaron and Moses, this Miriam, has a father named Amran. Now, that's Imran in the Old Testament. Aaron and Moses are also in the Old Testament, and they have a sister named Miriam. So they've got the Mary of Miriam of the Old Testament from 1400 BC mixed up with the Mary of the New Testament. Unless she lived for 1400 years, you cannot get the, the same Mary. <laughs> Now, what right. Muslims do as a comeback, they're saying, no, she's in the line of Mary. She's in the line of Levi. And that, that Amran is her father in the New Testament. No, that's where you need to go to Luke chapter 3. It is Heli who is the father of Mary. That's very clear in the genealogical line that goes from, they thought it was Joseph, that because Luke was writing to the disciples, they always knew, all of them knew that Heli was the father of Mary. And that goes all the way up to David through the, the prophetic line that is actually not corrupted to Nathan and then to David. Whereas the, the Matthew account in Matthew 1 is the other line from David through Solomon though goes through Jeconiah where the corruption came in. That's why Joseph was in the corrupted line. Jesus could not have come in the corrupted line, but thank God Jesus didn't come through Joseph. He came through Mary. Mm. Exactly. Okay. So is it fair to say that uh, because you talk about the traditions and the Quran, so if Muhammad got the, uh, got the revelation, as he said, which the Bible strictly forbids following anyone who gets a revelation from an angelic figure, right? So we've right. got a couple of new religions that, that do that. But the traditions might say uh, that, uh, that it goes back to Abraham. But does the Quran, like this was a brand new religion in 600 AD, 610 AD. This, this, that's when Islam started, is that right? 
Okay, there, there's two ways to answer that. Uh, if I was yeah. going to answer you from within the traditions, I would say yes, it was the first time that this religion was introduced because it was there, it was came to correct the, the corruption of the former re uh, revelations, to correct the Jews and the Christians. They had corrupted scripture. Therefore, Muhammad was sent to give the finalized scriptural and the, oh, okay. uh, the one that is uncorrupted. The problem with that, as your apostate prophet saw right away, there are problem after problem there are so many inconsistencies there are so many contradictions he mentioned that's many. why muslims are encouraged not to read the quran in their own language they're only encouraged to memorize it not read it to memorize it in arabic and only 15 percent of all muslims read arabic because they don't want them to read all these inconsistencies these historical anachronisms these scientific errors these contradictions and they certainly don't want people like me coming around and showing exactly where the quran came from Wow. So you go up against actual imams and, and have these debates once in a while? I've had over 100 of these debates. You remember, Lorlin, I spent 25 years every Sunday down at Speaker's Corner up on a ladder taking on hundreds of Muslims every Sunday uh, in Hyde Park wow. right there. Speaker's Corner has a tradition of going back 200 years. And without any books, without any notes, without any new, we didn't have any computers. We had to have everything in our head. That's why everything is memorized. I don't have to. Uh, after doing that for 25 years every Sunday, you kind of memorize everything, and we'd have to take on anybody. Sometimes I would do four dates in one, four debates in one afternoon, and we would have what we call these five-minute debates, where we all you need are two ladders, and you have the Muslim on one ladder, and I'm on the other ladder, and then you have a timekeeper in between, and then I would go for five minutes, he would go for five minutes, five, 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 five. After about 15 minutes, the Muslim ran out of material, and I could go on for another three hours. <laughs> We destroyed every one of those debates. And right. so we learn our craft. All of our team learn how to do this. That's why we can pretty well debate anybody anywhere at any time on most every subject. And we don't have to have any notes in front of us because we've been doing it for 25 years. Right. So do you, would you say it's hard for you to have a Muslim friend? Because it, it'll all come down to sort of uh, the, you know, the discernment between the religions. And it, it would be hard because of your calling to actually... Well, I think my best friends are Muslims. I, I love Muslims, especially if they are radical Muslims, because they're just like us. They're just like you. <laughs> yeah. They love to debate. Listen, this is why I can't understand why people are so timid and shy here in Canada, in the United States. Where in the world did that idea that when you go and engage with a Muslim, don't upset them, don't raise your voice, don't get into an argument with them. Have you looked at where Muslims come from? They come from mostly the Middle East and mostly from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, where I grew up. The vast majority of Muslims come from those three countries. Listen, look and see how they communicate. They are always debating. They're always engaging. They're from oral societies. If you don't, if you don't have a passion for your God and you don't have a passion for what you believe, you are going to lose every debate. And that's why we're doing such a terrible job in missions, because we're telling everybody to be timid, shy, and never and never hurt someone's sensibilities. I go to a lot of Muslims and in Britain uh, and in London there. We have a million Muslims just in London alone. And I remember I would ask them, tell me, how do you define a Christian that you've met? And this is what they would say. Christians are timid. They're shy. They don't know what they believe and they cannot defend what little they know. What an indictment against us because that's the way we come across. How can that be attractive to Muslims? 
They want people like their prophet Muhammad. They want people like their imam on a Friday afternoon who shuts down every debate, is so confident of what he says. They are so sure that Muhammad is the last prophet. They are so sure that the Quran is the final revelation. They are so sure that Allah is their God. And they are so sure that Mecca was the place that was for the beginning of time. Why aren't we equally as sure as them? And why aren't we equally passionate for Jesus Christ? Wow. No wonder so we're making a debt. 100%. So would another great show be to for you to come on and tell us why we should believe the Bible? Why, uh, you know, we should have any confidence in in uh, in Jesus? Uh, would that be something in your apologetics uh, that that you're equally as passionate about? In fact, I'm just starting a course, our course that's starting on on January 29th, our MAPI course. We have Master of Art in Apologetics and Polemics to Islam. We have about 125 students. We do everything by Zoom webinar so every Monday night. We're out from 23 countries uh, and we have these students come on. And what we're doing is comparing these two books. We're doing exactly that book by book for eight weeks every Monday uh, from January 29th wow. up until March 18th. So every people Monday night. want to know so more, they can contact you then. Uh, have we been putting up the website or whatever? Can they contact you to get this? Because I think a lot of people will, will want to know. Go up on Fender Films, uh, go up on Fender Films where, I, where, I, where, um, where you just put on, and below my name there, go up on Fender yep. Films on YouTube. I've just put a video up advertising that course just yes last night. Everything okay, you need to know is in that video. It's a, it's a 21 minute video. Okay, excellent. I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to take this personally, because I'm trying to figure out how I maintain this friendship that I have with this, uh, with, um, the, well, actually, I mean, different Muslims, but there's one in particular that we really, we're really kind of going at it. And, um, and I, I don't want to lose him, but then I don't, I just don't believe um, in, you know, I don't believe in his uh, thing. And I, I'm not as good as you you know, at stating all of this. And so I'm actually going to send him this broadcast and he's probably not Absolutely. talking to me again. I don't know. Listen, like, Laura Lynn, I think yeah. for a lot of people, they they don't know uh, because Muslims still are, are new here in North America. They're, we don't have many of them. That's understandable. And we don't teach in our seminaries or our Bible schools how to engage with Muslims face to face. And we certainly don't teach them how to read this book or even to open up this book and read it and understand why is it? Because if you're going to understand who a Muslim is, you've got to read this book. You've got to know this book. Like the man that you have is telling you all these things. You had no idea whether he was telling you the truth. He could have told you anything. He could have said, we could eat pork. Of course we can eat pork. Yes, we can drink wine. But how can he say that if he's got the if you've got the Quran in your hand and you're able to shut him down and say, no, that's not right. You know you can't eat pork. You know you can't drink wine. So well, these I are things that people need to know. I was asking him about these Hamas leaders. They're calling for the uh, eradication of the Jews. And then once in a while, you will get the Christians in too. And so my concern as we're in North America, and I'll kind of let you, uh, this will sort of be my final question. Thank you for your, the generosity of your time today. Uh, but um, how, what, what kind of concerns should we have in North America when these, these folks who definitely believe very radically um, they're supporting Hamas, they're supporting Hezbollah in our own country, and um, they they are calling for the, the death of the Jews and, and Christians at times, or the infidel, or whatever. Like, what kind of a problem do we have? I mean, the best solution is we all find Jesus and we come into agreement, but um, it's a concern. 
Yeah, and I think what you're finding, and this is, I mean, it's on all of our streets, it's on our university campuses, this, this slogan, from the river to the sea. What do you think that means? The river to the sea means annihilate everything in between, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That is all of Israel, because Israel is bordered by the river and the sea. So what they're saying is a complete eradication. That's genocide right there. They want genocide to all Jews. And they are they don't care how it is. And that's why, have you noticed, they already saying, they're already saying, we need to be, we need to make massacres something that is normal. We need to normalize massacres. That was just said last week here in the United States. So you can see they are now, the clerics are now saying this publicly. And they're looking at October 7th and said, that was a victory day, a day of victory for us. Well, can you see from a Christian standpoint, that is absolutely horrendous. It's barbaric because we're looking at it through Christian eyes. We're looking at it through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus very clearly was a man of peace. Put away your sword, for he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 62. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 43. You have heard it say, uh, to love your friends and hate your enemy. But I now say to love your enemies. There's no other book in the world that makes that statement but the New Testament, but Jesus Christ. So we look everything through Jesus' eyes, and that's infected our entire culture. It's even infected American culture. As much as I know you don't like to hear that, it really has. We do have a Judeo-Christian viewpoint on when it comes to massacre. So what in the world are we listening to this kind of stuff coming up? It's because they are going back to this book. When you We're talking about a completely different paradigm. We're talking about a completely different culture. We're talking about a completely different narrative. And the narrative in this book is has nothing to do with peace whatsoever. I, there is not one verse in there that has said that they have to have peace with me. I've been saying this for 40 years. Show me one verse in the Quran that says you're to have peace with me. It's just the opposite. So you can understand people that are actually reading this book and actually are following that prophet. They are the ones that are on the streets. They are the ones that are leading these calls. They are the ones that are pushing these people to say what they're saying and do what they're doing. And most of them assume that that's what the Quran says. Interestingly, they are actually they are actually quite correct. That's exactly what the Quran says. Uh, that's why when ISIS came about in 2014, it was a get. We were all aghast, but I wasn't. And we had 2,000 young men and women in Britain, many of them whom I knew, who moved and they moved to Syria to join ISIS. These were British Muslims, had been brought up in British schools with the Judeo-Christian mindset, yet they mm -hmm. all moved to Syria. Why? Because of this book. That's why we need to make sure we confront this book and confront the man behind the book. We've got to confront the Quran. You've got to confront Muhammad. Right. So, uh, and then very briefly, um, uh, Matthew 10, where Jesus does say, say that, uh, think not that I come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Uh, how would you... Uh, I love that one. I love that one. That's the yes. greatest verse right there. It's the verse that I use all my all my life. Why? Look and see what's happening. What's happening in Matthew 10. This is the commissioning of the 12 disciples. And so Jesus is sending the 12 disciples. Look and see what it says earlier. I'm sending you out as lamb before wolves. And then what does he say next? If you speak in my name, you're going to be hated. If you continue to speak in my name, you're going to be persecuted. Then you're going to be jailed. Then you're going to be flogged. If you speak in my name, you will be killed. Those are the five things he promises them if they speak in his name. Then we get to verse 34. For I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring the sword. I have come to set father against son and mother against daughter. Who has the sword here? Not us. Our parents have the sword. We're going to feel the sword. This is the sword of the commissioning. And then verse 38. He who is not willing to bear my cross 
is not worthy to be my disciple. We've got to expect the sword. We have got to expect the cross. This is a sword that's going to be used against us. Now stop and think, Laura Lynn. Were not all the disciples hated? Were they not all persecuted? Was not every one of them put in jail? Yeah. Were not every and disciple most died a martyr's flogged. death, right? Every disciple except for John was killed. Every mm. disciple except for John was killed. Did they not receive their commissioning? Is that not their commissioning? Should it not be our commissioning as well? This is our commission, Laura Lynn. We should be hated. We should be persecuted. What's happening in Canada should be normal for all Christians because this is the world we live in. Christ promised it to, back in the first century. It's the same promise in the 21st century. That's why I love Matthew 10 because it says that we, not that we use the sword, the sword is going to be used against us. Thank you for explaining that. That that makes sense too, uh, because um, <laughs> you know it's funny. I, I really, chapter, yeah. Not to read the whole chapter to see the context, but just read the next verse too to see the context. Yes, yes, if very you, good. If you become a Christian, if you start using Christ's name, your own family, your father is going to be yes. against you. Your mother. What do you think is happening in the Muslim world? Who are the first people to persecute converts? It's always the father and the older brother and the mother. Mm. That's the, there's a fulfillment of what Christ exactly is saying. Yes, yes. So thank you very, very much for this absolutely incredible dialogue. Um, we, we definitely, we just got to know more about this because we are, I like to have these conversations, but I've, I have not had explained to me why so many of them literally had no answer. And it might've been because I'm a woman and they maybe don't think that I'm getting to heaven. And plus I'm blonde and white. I don't know. <laughs> and you're not wearing a hijab and they want to get tips from you. Taxi drivers are not the best theologians in the world. Right. <laughs> but don't expect them to know much. I just figured out like just after this that I was putting them in the worst position. Oh, I get it. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Finally. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. J. Smith. Uh, we will... Um, put in the description where people could sign up for your course. I love it. I've got a good friend, um, Dr. Daryl Ferguson. He has his um, uh, uh, master's in Islamic studies, and he has been a source of uh, great information to me. But you've actually been um, just so uh, incredibly knowledgeable about all of this and pulling it all off the top of your head. That's, uh, that's just terrific. Thank you very much well, for this time. Well, you ask the right questions, Lorlin. And the next question you ask, I will have no idea what you're talking about. But yeah. so far, <laughs> the right question. Right. Well, thank you for explaining it because I think we might need to have you on a, a little bit more because as in North America, this whole issue with the, the Islamists are here. They don't believe what we believe. They're in our land. And um, we're, we're, we're all grappling now with that. And, and that's a problem. It's difficult. And if we Absolutely. could, if you could show us, you know, too, like how we do bring them to the Lord. Um, have you had an opportunity, final question, to bring people to Jesus through? Absolutely. And yeah. it usually comes through this kind of discussion. Yeah. It's amazing how people think that you'd never win people through arguments. Most every Muslim I've won has been through arguments. That's yeah. how I was one to the Lord. If you don't have arguments, what are you going to do with the Gospel of John? It's argument after written by John as a polemic against the Gnostics. Yeah. Most of Paul's letters are argument after argument. Of course you have to use arguments. This idea of not winning through arguments, I think, is created by Americans who don't know how to argue. Right. And Canadians who are too kind or too busy apologizing for something we haven't done wrong. You know, I mean, it's there just 
absolutely crazy. Thank you, sir. Uh, have a, a blessed evening, and I appreciate very much everything you've shared. God bless you. God bless you. We'll see you again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Wasn't that something? I mean, I have to say, I don't mind a good argument, but that's my personality. So, um, you know, I like to share bits, but I sure learned a lot. Uh, did you guys? I, I think this is amazing. Um, if you want to know more about that and you want to be more educated, I think we're all having an interest in understanding and being able to defend our faith and as well, maybe um, have to come against some of the things that are being put into our culture as well. So absolutely phenomenal. My website is laurelin.tv. Thank you for joining me today. Appreciate it so much. Um, if you enjoy this kind of programming where we just get to the nitty gritty, we tell the truth with courage, we're not afraid to ask the tough questions. If you really enjoy that, would you become a part of our program? You can go to our website and uh, there's a donate button there. You can donate um, anonymously. If you'd like to become a monthly partner, that is wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, for you know, With everyone just giving a little bit, we can make sure that this is happening. If you can give a lot, we need that too because it does take a certain amount to be able to, to do what we do, to have the um, everything that goes on. We're, we're in a room here you know, with some, some interesting uh, you know, uh, keyboard things. This JT's sitting there like he's on the moon mission is happening you know, with him put, pushing all these buttons. I'm not even allowed to touch it. So uh, if anything goes wrong, we got to fix it, you know, and also we have people that help us. And, a, um, you know, a man is worth his hire. A woman is worth their hire. And when they help us, we like to make sure that we can compensate them as well. And so we'd also like to go on Daystar. And uh, that would be a real privilege to be able to do that. So these are some things looking forward that we'd like to get the voice, the message, the courageous, uh, courageous mm, programming, you know, where we're, we're telling the truth, courageous speaking of the truth. <laughs> we want to get that out. I, now, you, I mean, I don't know if you want to support me because I can't like link my senses together, but we just, we want to be able to lovingly and, and honestly look at what's happening and not be afraid to talk about the truth. And so also, if you would like to send an e-transfer, Laura Lynn live at protonmail.com. That's where you can do that. You can also do Laura Lynn live at gmail.com works absolutely the same if you prefer Gmail, but that's my email. Um, on that email, you can also send me letters or questions that you may have. The other thing too is um, that we have snail mail and that's box 48184, New Westminster, V3M0A7. We would absolutely love if you would connect with us, contact us. Thank you for your large and small gifts. I thank you for sending me honey in the mail to that great lady that sent the honey and cinnamon. I've already thanked you before, but it also had like some, um, some um, skin... Uh, moisturizer and stuff like that and it's absolutely wonderful i just bless you for that i get really cool stuff little scarves uh you're you're all amazing and i thank you for caring about me and loving me yes jt got a scarf and little reindeers to go on the tree this year so he got a man scarf uh which i very much appreciate you sending for him because i like him to be you know decked up a little he's kind of a like a grizzly manly man and uh frumpy as one might say, and um, 
and he, it's a joke between us, but it's like dress up once in a while. So I have to, you know, help him to do that. And so you helped him to do that. Very nice. Um, I appreciate you also, you know, we've been talking about our finances. Do not forget. Um, we do not recommend keeping large amounts of money in the bank, like just sitting there, like do something, invest in real estate, um, perhaps invest in something that's really like solid, like gold, silver, precious metals. Um, our guy for that is Steve Merrill. He's at Sovereignize, uh, Sovereignize at ProtonMail.com. So make sure you spell that all right, Sovereignize at ProtonMail.com. But he can help you to get gold and silver into your grubby little hands, as my uh, grandson said to his, um, to his sister recently. Um, get your grubby little mitts off me, he said. <laughs> that cute he's like three <laughs> telling his sister to get her grubby little mitts anyways we had a howl about that but um if you want your grubby little hands onto your wealth um gold and silver is going to hold that wealth in fact it's probably going to go up and so uh on a day when the money in our banks is no longer worth what we thought it was because we've got a reckoning with the way that we run our country, not we, but he up at the top there, Justin Trudeau, what he's done with our money, our finances, getting us into a whole lot of debt. Once in a while, when our uh, money is not worth what we thought it was, uh, or if that day should ever come, we will not uh, regret that we took our, our little nest egg out and we invested in something that would have lasting value. So, woo, I appreciate that. Um, so, um, Let's just go to the word, shall we? Amen. I love this. I love the word. So I, you know, Ephesians and Philippians in the Bible, like has some really good stuff on who God is, what it's all about. Um, good living, not to follow other gods, you know, the supremacy of the son of God. Let's read that. Okay. I'm going to go to Colossians 1. Verse 15, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You ever wonder how this whole universe is just functioning and we're not spiraling out of control, you know? And I, I, I know, I know we've got that thing that they call, uh, what do they call it? You know, the apple falls to the ground, JT? Gravity. <laughs> He's like my little encyclopedia, okay word search um you know how, how, do, how do i know we've got gravity and all those things but you know who placed everything so perfectly in perfect orbit that was god he literally spoke things into being and they came about and the earth it if it was just like two degrees off apparently it would be unsustainable for for life here on earth god knew what kind of environment he needed in order to sustain human beings that would become his friends. And he holds, this says he holds all things together. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might save, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. I think he's speaking of Jesus here. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through this blood that was shed on the cross. That's what Jesus did. He made peace. And sometimes we on earth, we don't see the peace because we've got people coming at us because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against the principalities and authorities and rulers in dark places that are that are causing these human beings to behave pretty badly. And let's face it, there's just some creepy sociopaths as well. I mean, they're just deranged people on this planet. I don't think that we should have much to do with them. I think that God is in charge of all of this and he wants us to make good decisions about how we spend our lives and how we trust in him as being the one who brought peace through his blood. And when we put our hope in that, when we put our hope in Jesus, because it says this, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Amen. It's the only way we get freedom. God bless. Thanks for joining me today. You know, it's not easy to deliver the truth of what our sick world is doing, but for some of us, we feel that we have no choice. Because if we are silent about these abominable things, then we are letting evil go unchecked, and we cannot do that. For those of you wonderful people who are writing me and are sharing your encouragement, I am deeply grateful. Thank you for all the letters that you've been sending. Thank you for the donations and the support. I found out that in order to speak the truth, you have to become very, very strong. If you would go to my website at www.lauralyn.tv, you'll find all of the ways that you can contact me. Remember, my friends, all is well. All is well. Thanks for joining me.